the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, December 1st. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. So, were you ever scared of monsters hiding under your bed when you were a kid? I have to admit, I kind of was. Or maybe in the closet. Now, of course, I outgrew that notion pretty quickly, but my mom would have told you that even as a teenager, there was definitely a monster under my bed. And by that, she meant all of the junk that I shoved under there. You see, my mom was a major neat freak, and I was not. We battled over the condition of my room pretty much until I moved out for college. And I very much had an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality. So, like, if you couldn't see the mess, there wasn't a mess as far as I was concerned. And I still stand by that. So, I would just shove the clutter and the junk under my bed. The room looked fine, so no problem, right? Well, my mom thought there was a problem. She did not subscribe to this theory. She reasoned that a hidden mess was still a mess. And I guess if you really think about it, she wasn't wrong. There was, in fact, a mess. It was just hidden under the bed. So that's kind of where we are with the U.S. financial system right now. You know, the room looks clean, but there's a monster under the bed. To put it more clearly, the financial crisis that kicked off in March, it's still bubbling under the surface. Now, Fed officials will tell you that the banking system is sound. Pundits on mainstream financial networks don't really talk about it at all. The failure of Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, and First Republic Bank, well, that's ancient history as far as they're concerned. And if you just follow the mainstream narrative, well, you've got to conclude that everything is great. The room looks clean, but if you stoop down and peek under the bed, You'll find a big mess. And at some point, the powers that be aren't going to be able to shove any more dirt under the bed. So there were a couple of data points that came out this week that had me thinking about this simmering financial crisis. But first, I really need to talk about the recent rally in gold. So as you know, gold broke $2,000 an ounce several times over the last several weeks. And finally, late last week, it broke $2,000 and it held. In fact, gold took a run at $2,050 on Tuesday night. And then it took another run at that level again on Wednesday, but it couldn't quite breach. Uh, $2,048.90 was the highest that gold ran. That was on Wednesday. Uh, On Thursday, we saw a little bit of profit-taking and some consolidation in the market. There was also a bit of a rebound in the dollar that created some headwinds. And so gold closed yesterday around $2,035 an ounce, but still a a nice, healthy pad there above $2,000. And we've kind of been waiting for this. We've been waiting for gold to break $2,000 and actually hold that resistance That was a significant resistance level. I think 2050 is the next big resistance points. And I feel like that once it breaks that level and holds, it's probably going to run to 2100 pretty quickly. And of course, then we're going to be talking about record high gold prices in dollar dollar terms. But 
honestly, I think the macro dynamics aren't quite set for the big breakout. I'm still waiting for the next big thing to break in the economy with these high-ish interest rates. And I'll explain why I say high-ish here in a minute. Um, But what we're seeing now is uh, bullishness in the gold market. We're also seeing a lot of bullishness in stocks. And this is all because of the assumption that the Fed has finished hiking interest rates and that it's going to start cutting rates in 2024. Um. There was actually a really interesting forecast from Deutsche Bank that came out this week. And uh, they said the Fed is going to start creating inflation next year. Okay, that's not exactly what they said, but that's the implication of their latest forecast. The Deutsche Bank analyst forecast that the Fed will cut rates by 175 basis points in 2024, so almost 2%, in response to a, quote, mild recession. So if that happens, it would drive the Federal Reserve's fund rate down to between 35 and 3.75%. This loosening monetary policy, by definition, would create more inflation. So that's why I say that Deutsche Bank is predicting more inflation in 2024. They're never going to phrase it that way, but that's exactly what we're talking about here. Now, as you know, if you've been following along, the dominant narrative today is that the Fed has successfully beaten down price inflation. A cooler-than-expected CPI report in October reinforced this notion. And with inflation on the run, mainstream analysts think that the Fed has uh, initiated its last rate hike and will actually pivot to rate cuts next year to guide the economy to a soft landing. And even before we got the CPI data release uh, earlier, uh, well, last month now, we're in December, so in November, uh, markets were already pricing in 75 basis points of rate decreases in 2024. So basically, the Deutsche Bank is doubling that expectation and saying we're going to get even more rate cuts next year than expected. And of course, many mainstream analysts and financial news network pundits have taken a recession completely off the table. But Deutsche Bank senior economist Brett Ryan told Reuters that he expects the U.S. economy to hit a, quote, soft patch that will lead to, quote, more aggressive, to a more aggressive cutting profile. Uh, So in summation, Deutsche Bank, this economist, is saying that uh, we're not we're not going to have a hard landing. It's not going to be soft. There's going to be a recession, uh, but mild and To deal with this, the Fed's going to cut interest rates. So I see a couple of problems with this narrative or this projection, forecast, whatever you want to call it, Um, and really the entire mainstream narrative more generally. In the first place, the death of inflation is greatly exaggerated. I mean, no matter how you slice or dice the data, none of the numbers come close to the Fed's 2% target. Right, core CPI is still double two percent. There's there's nothing that says two percent here, you know. So we could just as easily see a uh, a turnaround where inflation heats up and we start seeing the CPI creep higher. Um, so to say that inflation is dead is clearly silly. Now again, think carefully about what Ryan is saying, the Deutsche Bank economist. He's saying that this mild recession is going to put additional downward pressure on price inflation. But the thing is, 
monetary policy that he expects the Fed to follow is inflation. So rate cuts will ease financial conditions. It will allow for more money creation and credit expansion. Remember, rising prices are a symptom of monetary inflation. And monetary inflation is exactly what we will get when the central bank reverts to a looser monetary policy. So the idea that we're going to have a recession and that's going to further ease uh, inflationary pressure, so therefore the Fed can cut interest rates and go to a looser monetary policy, it's basically saying the Fed wins and then creates more inflation, right? In other words, as soon as the Fed declares victory and starts cutting rates, inflation wins. The Fed goes right back to the inflationary policies that got us into this mess in the first place. It's also important to note that even with interest rates at 5.5%, monetary conditions aren't tight. And that's why I said interest rates are high-ish. I mean, they're high given the amount of debt, given where we came from, but Monetary conditions still aren't tight. The Chicago Fed has a financial conditions index, and it confirms this. As of the end of, uh, I think it was November 24th, the index stood at negative uh, 0.50. So any negative number indicates loose financial conditions. So despite all of the tightening that the Fed has done, the Fed is still running a slightly inflationary monetary policy right now. So, inflation isn't dead. The Fed is still creating it according to its own metrics. Now, Deutsche Bank projects that the Fed will loosen policy even more next year, uh, and we're supposed to believe that inflationary pressures are going to ease. So, yeah, this is the time to be buying gold and silver. My personal opinion is we're still a little way off from the big breakout. Um... I mean, you could even see the price dip back below $2,000 an ounce again, especially if the Fed people start jawboning and, and, you know, try and talk about, uh, you know, we're still in the inflation fight and we might raise rates. If they start that again, then it's going to put that downward pressure on gold. But I don't know. I I wouldn't necessarily count on gold dropping below $2,000 an ounce. It's just as possible we'll never see sub $2,000 gold again. Regardless, the price is still lower than it should be based on the level of inflation out there and the level of inflation that's still coming. Mark Faber of the Doom, Boom, and Gloom report offered some really good analysis along these lines in a recent interview he did. I wrote it up, and I'll link to that in the show notes page. It's definitely worth you checking out. But what I'm driving at here is that we've seen this solid rally in gold just because people think the Fed has won the inflation fight and they might start easing monetary policy a bit. What's going to happen when the Fed has slashed rates back to zero is running another quantitative easing program and inflation is still popping up. That's when I think you're really going to see a massive run up in the price of gold. Part of what's driving this irrational exuberance right now is everything seems fine, right? The government upped GDP growth to 5.2% in Q3. People are still spending money out there. Now, never mind that they're burying themselves in debt to do it. In fact, a lot of this GDP growth is due to the fact that people are running up credit card bills uh, and the government's spending a lot of money. Um, But still, if you look at just on the surface, 5.2% 
GDP growth, that's fantastic. And, you know, the labor market, it has softened a bit. But if you just look at the headline numbers, it seems solid. So there's nothing to worry about, right? Everything is great. It's unicorns and lollipops out there. The bedroom is spotless. But as I said, just go look under the bed. Shine a flashlight under there. Past all of the dust bunnies, yep, he's there, the boogeyman. And the boogeyman is in the form of a financial crisis. But you might be asking, Mike, didn't they fix that? Well, yes and no. It's more like they wallpapered over it. Or, to avoid mixing metaphors, it shoved all the dirty clothes under the bed, created a monster, and then said, everything's fine. There were a couple of items that came across my radar this week that shined a little bit of light under the bed. And if you look just real closely, you can see the glowing eyes back there in the corner. So first, the FDIC released its third quarter data revealing unrealized losses on securities held by U.S. banks exploded by 22% in the third quarter. Now, of course, unrealized losses don't really matter, right? Until they do. Unrealized losses on bank balance sheets, primarily on U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, rose by $126 billion in the third quarter. And total unrealized losses now uh, come to $684 billion. And this is according to the FDIC's quarterly bank data release. Now, current unrealized losses are only slightly below the record that was set in the third quarter of 2022. And this reflects the fact that the FDIC took over three failed regional banks earlier this year and ate their unrealized losses uh, when it sold their assets. So it wiped them off of the books. So you, you saw a drop in unrealized losses because the unrealized losses in those failed banks just kind of got erased out of the system. Now we're back very close to the record level that we were at before those bank failures. Um, For you accounting geeks out there, unrealized losses on security are actually divided between two accounting methods. So we've got unrealized losses on held-to-maturity securities, uh, and those jumped by $81 billion to $391 billion. And and what I mean by held-to-maturity securities, that means that the bank has marked those that we're not going to ever sell them, we're just holding on to them, uh, you know, getting the interest income off of them, and then once they mature, we'll get our money back. Then we have unrealized losses on available for sale securities, and that jumped by $45 billion to $293 billion. So these are securities that uh, the, the banks could at any time decide we're going to sell these to raise cash. If they do sell them, they're going to lose a bunch of money. So the problem is that unrealized losses drastically decrease a, blank, a bank's liquidity. If it has to sell bonds in order to raise capital, the bank is going to experience, again, significant losses. And this is exactly what took down Silicon Valley Bank last March. Here's here's kind of a summary of what happened. SVB sold a large portion of its bond portfolio at 1.8. 
it sold its bond portfolio at a $1.8 billion loss, right? So it had these bonds. The bonds had dropped in value because the Fed had pushed uh, interest rates higher, and, it, and that causes uh, bond prices to drop. So it took the loss. They said, we're going to sell these. We're going to take the loss. The CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, Greg Beck, he said that the bank made the sale Quote, because we expect continued higher interest rates, pressured public and private markets, and elevated cash burn levels from our clients. So basically, they needed cash, right? So the bank bought the bonds when interest rates were really low. As a result, the $21 billion available for sale bond portfolio was not yielding above cash burn. Meanwhile, rising interest rates caused the value of the portfolio to fall significantly, as I just said. Interest rates and the price of bonds are inversely correlated. So when you see interest rates rising, that means the value of bonds are dropping and vice versa. When the price of a bond goes up, then the interest rate tends to drop. The plan was to sell longer-term, lower-interest-rate bonds that were sitting on their books and then reinvest that money into shorter-duration bonds with a higher yield. Instead, the sale put a huge dent in the bank's balance sheet It caused worried depositors to pull funds out of the bank, and well, you know, the rest is history. So, Wolf Street explained more generally how these, quote, irrelevant, unrealized losses can suddenly become relevant. Quote, banks via a quirk in bank regulations don't have to mark these securities to market value, but can carry them at their purchase price. The difference between market value and purchase price is the unrealized gain or loss that the bank must disclose in its quarterly financial filings so that we, the depositors, can see and get spooked by them and yank our money out. Us billionaires and centimillionaires first on the two fundamental principles of investing. One, he who panics first panics best, and two, after us, the deluge. End quote. So, as you probably remember, the Federal Reserve set up a bailout program to allow banks to deal with this problem. So, instead of selling bonds at a loss, as Silicon Valley Bank did, cash-strapped banks can go to the Fed's Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP, or bank bailout program, as I like to call it, and they can borrow against their bonds at par or at face value. So basically, this allows banks to use these undervalued assets to raise cash, at least temporarily, without realizing big losses on their balance sheet. So to kind of visualize what's going on here, you know, let's say you've got a bond and it's valued at $10. You bought it for $10. That's the face value. And then uh, the bond market crashes, and now that bond's really only worth five bucks, right? So if you sell that bond, you're only going to get $5 for it. That's a $5 loss that you're experiencing. What this Fed program lets you do is it lets you take that bond that's only worth $5 on the market, but you can go to the Fed and use it as collateral at $10, the $10 that you paid for it. So, So basically, you're able to borrow money that you wouldn't be able to sell it for. It's a really a pretty sweetheart deal when you get down to it. I mean, I wish I could, you know, use assets and, and borrow at twice the value or whatever. Um, but alas, you and I aren't part of the club that's allowed to do that. So as unrealized losses rise, banks continue to tap into this bailout program 
more than nine months after the crisis kicked off. Yes, the BTFP still exists, and banks are still tapping into it. Um, Total outstanding loans in the BTFP program jumped by just over $5 billion in November. So, first, there was a sudden spike in banks tapping into the bailout program during the first week of the month, with uh, financial institutions borrowing $3.87 billion from the BTFP. And then there was another surge in borrowing between November 15th and November 22nd. And again, this is all coming from Fed data. So, as of November 22nd, there was $114.1 billion in outstanding loans sitting in the BTFP bank bailout program. Think about that for a minute. The crisis was back in March, right? There's still $141.1 billion in this bailout fund, outstanding loans that banks have taken out to shore up their own balance sheets. And then on top of that, banks just borrowed $5 billion more in one month. So the fact that banks are still accessing this bailout program and suddenly at a faster rate would seem to me to indicate that Maybe the banking sector is still a little bit shaky. You know, just kind of to back up, to give you a little bit of background, after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, the Fed created the BTFP, and the thinking was that the program would allow banks to easily access capital, quote, to help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all of their depositors. Ah, Sounds so nice, doesn't it? The BTFP offers loans of up to one year in length to banks, savings associations, credit unions, and other eligible depository institutions, pledging U.S. Treasuries, agency debt and mortgage-backed securities, and other qualifying assets as collateral. And I can't overemphasize this enough. It's a sweetheart deal because banks can borrow against their assets at face value, whereas in a sane, normal world of lending, you can only borrow against collateral at its market value. It's notable that the sudden spike in bailout borrowing in November happened even as bond markets rallied and bonds regained some of their value. So you would think that would take some of the pressure off of these banks. Um, But alas, we've still got banks that are struggling and needing to tap into this program. Now, a little caveat Granted, the $114 billion outstanding isn't really significant when you compare it to the $22.8 trillion in commercial bank assets held by the 4,100 commercial banks in the U.S. So, you could argue, and some would argue, that, oh, Mike, $114 billion, yeah, it sounds like a lot, but when you compare that to all of the assets in the banking system, everything is fine. So, to be fair, the fact that some troubled banks are still tapping into a bailout program eight months after the crisis doesn't necessarily mean the banking system is on the verge of collapse. But while the bailouts might not be a fire, it's at least smoke, right? It indicates that there are still problems in the banking system bubbling under the surface. And, you know, you can talk about $22.8 trillion in commercial bank assets. That's great. A lot of those are held by big banks like Bank of America or, you know, Citibank. But there's a lot of assets out there. But if you are one of the troubled banks, 
all of those assets don't matter, right? I mean, you have to kind of look at things at an individual basis. And what this is telling me is there's still a lot of banks out there that are struggling because of the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes. And really, this is a predictable consequence of the Fed raising interest rates to battle price inflation. Now, I'm not arguing that they shouldn't have done it. You know, I mean, clearly we had price inflation. It clearly wasn't transitory, so they had to do something. So I'm not arguing that they shouldn't have done it. But this consequence was predictable. And really, the problem started long before the Fed started raising rates started raising rates, right? Artificially low interest rates and easy money are the mother's milk of this bubble economy. With everybody from corporations, consumers, federal government, state governments, everybody is buried in debt. This financial system and the economy as a whole simply can't function over the long run, in a high interest rate environment. And again, even though 5 5.5% isn't necessarily high in historical terms, it's high for the given circumstances. So the banking crisis earlier this year, when we saw the failure of those three banks, was the first thing to break as a result of rising interest rates. Other things will follow. We've already seen some tremors in the commercial real estate market. But you know, when you have this much debt... This many malinvestments in the economy, and you start raising rates, you take away that easy money, you take away the easy money drug, the addict is going to start going into withdrawals. And it's hard to tell where exactly it's going to manifest, but it's going to manifest somewhere. Again, you know, as I said, you might be tempted to blame the Fed's recent rate hikes for these issues, but the real problem started years ago. Years ago? No, years ago. Quick history recap. After the Great Recession, the Federal Reserve intentionally incentivized borrowing to stimulate the economy, right? It cut rates to zero. It launched three rounds of quantitative easing. After an unsuccessful attempt to normalize rates and shrink its balance sheet in 2018, the Fed doubled down on its easy money policies during the pandemic. Uh, basically doubled what it did through uh, the 2008 financial crisis. This monetary inflation, again, that's what it is. When you create a bunch of money, that's monetary inflation. That is inflation by definition. It inevitably led to price inflation. That forced the Fed to raise interest rates. We've seen the impact of that. Now, the central bank appears to have cooled price inflation, some, for now, but it also broke the financial system. So in effect, the Fed managed to paper over the financial crisis with the bank bailout program, right? Now banks can go and they can borrow money. They're probably not going to fail. So everything looks fine on the surface, but you still got these banks that are struggling. And, you know, at some point they've got to pay these loans back. That could be a problem unless we see a significant reversal in bond prices and, yeah, we might see some rebound in the bond market, but I don't, I don't know that we're going to get back to a level that's going to help these banks, right? Keep in mind, these banks bought these bonds when interest rates were down near zero, so bond prices were very high. So yeah, again, the Fed managed to paper over the financial crisis with the bailout, but it really didn't do anything more than slap a Band-Aid on it. It has not addressed the underlying issue. And that's the impact of rising interest rates on an economy and a financial system that is addicted to easy money. 
And I'm telling you, it's only a matter of time before something else breaks. And you're going to want to have gold and silver before that happens. And that's why now is the time to talk to a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist. You can do that simply by calling 1-888-GOLD-160 or emailing info at shiftgold.com or going to shiftgold.com, clicking on the Getting Started tab, and you can chat with a Precious Metal Specialist right there online. As I say every week, these guys are fantastic. They're knowledgeable. They're going to talk to you. They're going to look at your investment goals, your situation, and help you figure out how Precious Metals can fit into your portfolio and your investment strategy. So give them a call today. And with that, I'm going to call this a gold wrap for the week. You can get more details on all of these stories and more. And of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. If you haven't done it, subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. We're on the Apple Podcast, Google Podcast. We're on the Shift Gold YouTube channel. Links to all of these things are on the show notes page, along with links to our social media channels, which you want to follow. Do me a favor. Give this show a like. Share it. Appreciate that. And you can email me, mmahari at shiftgold.com. That's it. Have a great weekend, and I will talk to you again next week.